Okay, just for a short while before the uh, the children come back, um, I just want to just look at something because the, the play that, that you're going to see in a short while is going to be very different. It's going to be very different from the traditional, typical nativity play that you've seen before. Of course, there'll be elements in it that you'll be familiar with. But the reason for that is that we've tried to base it on the Bible. I know that may sound a little bit controversial, but we thought it was a really good idea. This is a church. It's a church Christmas play. And we thought, you know what? We're going to try and look at the Bible in terms of the details because there is so much, and I'm sure many of you are familiar, there's so much that surrounds the whole nativity story, the Christmas story, that is totally alien to the Bible. But then let's just start with that question. Does it matter? Well, my contention is, yes, it really does matter. You see, last Sunday, Adrian was speaking to us and was sharing uh, about the Feast of Hanukkah, that, that event that took place in around about 167 AD when this individual, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, of the Seleucid dynasty, one of Alexander the Great's, uh, he split the, the empire into four parts, and one of the descendants of one of those arms uh, ends up ruling the area of Syria and, and, and so on. Uh, and there's this kind of continual battle between those that were down in Egypt. And Adrian was sharing how um, this had led to the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. And um, the incredible miracle was that when finally um, the, the Maccabean revolt took place and the, the Jews recaptured Jerusalem, interesting, isn't it? That was 167 BC, and the Jews were in Jerusalem, and yet the governments of the world today are debating whether or not Israel have a right to Jerusalem. It's crazy, but anyway. Um, and, and as they go back into the temple, the Jews, they find that the menorah, the, this seven-branched candlestick um, that had been um, set up and been made by Moses by God's instruction, um, the, there wasn't enough oil. Uh, there was just in a one-day supply of oil, and it was going to take them to about seven days to make any more oil because there was a particular process they had to go through. And so they, they let the candlestick anyway, these seven branches, um, and in, miraculously it lasted for the entire period of time until they had made the new oil. And that then leads to this Jewish feast which they commemorate this time of year, uh, the Feast of Hanukkah. And we saw, as Adrian was sharing that with us last week, how that one verse in the New Testament puts God's seal on that feast. And it's, it's, it's something that God, Jesus himself celebrated. In fact, it's more of an editorial comment that we read about in the New Testament. But you start to see how little details validate other portions of the Bible. Paul, actually, in the New Testament, hangs the fact that the blessings of Abraham can now also fall upon the church. And he hangs this whole argument on the basis and the difference between singular and plural in the terms of the vocabulary that's used. Now, that's almost splitting hairs. And some of us will say, well, does it really matter? Well, yes, it does, because Paul and Jesus himself actually both build arguments on these kind of things. The entire argument is built on the grammatical structure of the text, even beyond just the letters themselves, the structure. Interestingly enough, in some of uh, the modern versions of the Bible, one particular one, uh, there's over 2,000 changes from single to plural. And there's 1,600 gender changes. Well, that should give you some cause for concern because if, if those details are that important, we need to be a little bit more respectful of God's word. Just, just for a second, let's consider every other area of life. Do the details matter? Let me just read this to you. Uh, what is your tolerance for being off course? Are you okay with a one-degree mistake? Well, at first glance, it may seem like no big deal. But once you start to see the full possible impact of such an error, you'll probably agree with me that even one-degree mistake is unacceptable. 
For every degree you fly off course, if you were flying in a plane, you miss your target by 92 feet for every mile that you fly. And for every 60 miles you fly, you miss your target by one mile. That's the problem if you're aiming for, a, for a, a, an airport, a, a runway, isn't it? I think you'd agree. If you're a mile off your, your runway, it's a bit of a problem. If you're flying around the equator, you'll land almost 500 miles off target. That's just being one degree off course. Yet my point is, in every area of life, details matter. You know, and just consider, for example, forensic investigation. You know, an error in analysis can actually lead to the wrong person being imprisoned. The details really do matter. You consider a doctor or a consultant. I mean, sadly, we hear so often in the news, don't we, of doctors or consultants that have actually misdiagnosed things, and it can be life-threatening. A surgeon, they can't afford to make mistakes. There's not, well, it doesn't matter, a helicopter pilot. Yeah, there's, there's so many examples that we could give in life. A musician. And you're thinking, really? Well, this came from a conversation I was having with Marley yesterday. I've got a, a number of guitars. I, I like guitars, you may have noticed. But uh, I've got a 12-string guitar at home. And uh, I decided to get out. I was tuning up. And Marla innocently said to me, she said, because obviously there's, there's 12 strings, and it takes a little bit longer to tune up. She said, how many have you got to do? I mean, the strings. I said, all of them. I mean, if you, it's no good having one string that's out of tune because it was so horrible. You know, you can't just do, that will do. You, you, the details really are important. Jesus himself said, Verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass, one jot, or in, essentially in the Hebrew alphabet, that's a yod. It's just a, what we would consider like an apostrophe. It's actually one of the letters in their alphabet, but it's the smallest letter. And he says, not one yod or one tittle. They're the little decorative marks that indicate the vowels and things around the letters. Shall in no wise pass from the Lord till all be fulfilled. Jesus says, even the smallest details are important. And I'll show you some of the reasons why those things are. Back in the, the temple, they had uh, a number of artifacts that were made. This is the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and that big thing that circled there was known as the laver. It was basically a big bath that the priests got into and washed ceremonially to be cleaned for sacrificing and so on. Now, we're given the details in First Kings 7.23 that Solomon made this molten sea, or this, this bronze laver. And we're told it was 10 cubits from one brim to the other. So we're given the dimensions. Cubits typically about 17 inches or so. Uh, and it was round uh, all about. And its height uh, was 5 cubits. And a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. Now... This, critics tell us, is a problem. And I want to show you why details really matter. Because we're given that you see kind of the idea of the scale there, five cubits tall by the height of a person, ten cubits in diameter. But then we're given the circumference as 30 cubits. Now, sure, if you're good at maths, you'll be aware that's given us the radius there of something that's mathematically incorrect. The circumference should be pi times the diameter, which is 3.14. So the, the mathematically, this statement in the Bible, and some people say, oh, it's splitting hairs, but th- there was a few years back now, one of the respected Muslim scholars debated a Christian apologist, uh, Jay Smith, and used this as his basis to say, look, the Bible is wrong because there's these errors, these mistakes in there. I made a really big thing of it, and a number of Muslims kind of pick up on this, and they say, well, the Bible's wrong because, and they'll point to these type of things. Well, interestingly enough, when you look at this text in the Hebrew, in the bottom part of that, you can see the Hebrew. I'm not going to go into the detail. But the word in the Bible that was given there um, for the, the, uh, the, uh, the measurements 
is misspelt. Now, some rabbi years ago noticed this. And rather than correcting the Bible, they put in the margin the correct spelling. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is, when we look at the, the details, you've got the two, two different words as they're, they're spelled. Hebrew letters all have a numeric value. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. So if we just look at the, the values of those words, and we do a, a little simple bit of arithmetic here, what you find is by dividing the, the sum of the correct word by the sum of the incorrect word there, you end up mathematically with 3.14150934. It's pi to a number of decimal places. Is that just a mistake? I don't think so. You see, even when there's these things on the surface may seem like an error, when you dig a bit deeper, you find incredible details and design built into the text. I could give you hundreds, literally hundreds of examples like this in the Bible. That's an error of less than um, one, sorry, less than 15 thousandths of an inch. Uh, It's incredible in a circumference of over 46 feet. I just want to look at this. This is actually a modern translation of the Bible. And it says here, just to highlight a particular bit, it says, it's talking about the Magi, the wise men, when they come to see Herod. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. All okay with that? Well, you shouldn't be, because that's not what the Bible says. You see, if we actually look, first of all, it wasn't an interview. And secondly, the statement that they went to Bethlehem, this is what the Bible actually says. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Can you show me in that verse where the word Bethlehem occurs? It doesn't. The translators have made an assumption based upon tradition. You see, there's no mention of Bethlehem in in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2. You see, if you actually look at what the Bible says, you find that the Magi never went to Bethlehem. Now, my mum, and this is probably where I get my troublesome streak from, goes around garden centres this time of the year. And whenever she sees these nativity displays, you often find that you've got, obviously, you've got the shepherds and obviously baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. But you'll always find the three kings there with their, their three gifts and things. So because of this, my mum will go and move the kings kind of ten foot down out of the way because they weren't there. They never went to Bethlehem. I'm sorry if that's going to ruin your Christmas and it ruins the Christmas cards you're sending out to people. But you see, what the Bible says is that following the birth of Jesus, we find after eight days in Luke 2.21, he was circumcised. After 41 days, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord according to the law. That's where they meet Simeon and Anna. That's Luke 2, 22 to 39. Then they return home to Nazareth. They didn't live in Bethlehem. They'd only gone there for the census. And we read Luke 2, 39, it says, And when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So something up to two years later when the Magi arrive, well, there were no, there was no family based in Bethlehem. They'd gone back home. And so they come out from Herod. And do you remember what happens when they come out from seeing Herod? Well, you're going to see it in the play in a while. Suddenly they see the star again. And the star leads them to where the young child was. Jesus could have been anything up to two years old by that point. See, tradition is guilty of uh, of robbing us of so much of truth 
that really does matter. You see, we've got this idea of the cattle all gathered around. There's no mention of that in the Bible. The kings certainly weren't in the scene. The idea of the star above a, a manger. There's no actual reference in the Bible to that whatsoever. The, the magi see the star in the east and they set off on their journey. They don't see it again until they come out from seeing Herod. And it's not pointing to Bethlehem, it's pointing to Nazareth. All of these issues. And by the way, there weren't three of them. That's a whole another story. We looked at that in detail last year and this is incredible. Uh, they, they found some years ago, they found three skulls um, buried somewhere in Mesopotamia. Who else could they be? So they got sold for a large sum of money. They're now on display in Cologne Cathedral, uh, in, encased in a gold, beautifully gold um, tomb. The other thing is the, the whole idea of them being in this cattle shed. You see, Jesus said, you've made the commandment of God by no effect by your tradition. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Jesus says that tradition actually obfuscates the truth. It blinds us to the truth of God's word. And there is no greater example than this than, of course, with Christmas and the whole nativity story as we're familiar with it. I just want to ask you two quick questions. Why Bethlehem? Well, Jesus could have been born anywhere, couldn't he? Why Bethlehem? Some of you may say, well, because of the census and everything else, well, why, why the census? Well, why the timing? God engineered that they would be there. But still, why Bethlehem? And you may say, well, because of David. Okay, but why was David born in Bethlehem? What's the significance? And why shepherds? Why did those angels of all groups and classes of people appear to the shepherds, which at that time were largely despised? They were considered pretty much outcasts. If you couldn't get another job, then you became a shepherd. So why Bethlehem? Why shepherds? I'll try and give you a quick answer to those things. You see, one thing I want to make really clear is that Satan was really determined to stop the first Christmas. We can go through and we can look at a number of examples in the Bible. And going back to, uh, well, right from the, the opening pages of the Bible, Cain and Abel. That was an attempt by Satan to stop the possibility of Jesus coming, a Messiah or a Savior coming. All the way through the Old Testament, we see examples of this with the, the babies in Egypt, the male babies being killed, and so on. And many, many other examples through the Old Testament of this. You see, having failed in that attempt, Satan has been unrelenting in trying to obscure it ever since. You see, he failed in stopping Christmas happen, Jesus coming the first time. So what he's trying to do is to cover the whole thing up and obfuscate in all these ideas and traditions. And of course now, most people, when they think of Christmas, they think of tinsel, they think of trees, they think of presents and buying things they think of christmas lunch sadly very few people think of of jesus there's a song by a christian artist called larry norman some years ago he said uh, it used to be the birthday of the one who saved our necks now we call him santa claus and we spell it with an x it's quite profound but it's true isn't it spurgeon made this comment discernment is not telling right from wrong. It is telling right from almost right. I really like that. It's not about telling right. A child can tell right from wrong. But discernment is telling right from almost right. So I want to talk a little bit about these, these shepherds. Alfred Endersham was a 19th century Jewish scholar, became a Christian. He highlighted that the flocks that were kept around Bethlehem 
were very specifically destined for the temple to be sacrificed there. Now, that's not something we normally hear at Christmas time. That's not something that normally comes out. The shepherds that were keeping watch over their flocks by night, they knew very well the intended purpose of the lambs under their care. And their job was to guard their sheep from becoming injured or blemished because those temple sacrifices had to be pure. And so it was to those watching over animals destined for temple sacrifice that the angels announced Jesus' birth. The arrival of the ultimate Lamb of God was therefore revealed to those responsible for watching over the sacrificial lambs that are always pointed toward him. You see, their job was to inspect these lambs and make sure they were ready for sacrifice, that there was no blemish in them. Why were the shepherds chosen? They were chosen not to do anything other than to acknowledge that Jesus was without blemish. They came to effectively inspect him. And Bethlehem, of course, is chosen as the place for Christ's birth precisely for this reason, because this was the place that these sacrificial lambs were. In the Jewish Mishnah, it says this, uh, the lambs that were raised in this particular place were particularly special in that they were from a unique flock that was made up of sheep that were destined to be sacrificed in Jerusalem, and in particular, the sacrificial lambs for the Passover sacrifices. Now we know that the men who kept them were specifically trained for this task. They were actually under rabbinical care and education. They were educated in in what an animal had to be like before it could be sacrificed. The job was to make sure that none of the animals were hurt or damaged. It had to be without blemish according to the law, the Torah. And for that reason, these lambs, when they were born, were wrapped in swaddling bands to protect them from lashing out and injuring themselves. And so, being themselves under rabbinical care, these shepherds would maintain a ceremonially clean stable, for want of a better term for now, for a birthing place. Now, according to the Talmud, another Jewish writing, all the sheep that were found in the area from Jerusalem as far as Migdal Eden, and that's an interesting name, we're going to talk about that in a second, which is just on the outskirts of Bethlehem on both sides were deemed to be holy and consecrated. And they could only be used for sacrifices in the temple. In particular, peace offerings and the Passover offerings. Now, just going to read a quote here. Um, Luke's original audience would have immediately picked up on the religious significance of the Bethlehem shepherds watching their flocks by night. You see, you and I have been robbed of this because of tradition. Aware of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the Jewish temple worship of the day, they would have known that when you said Bethlehem, you said sacrificial lambs. The hills around Bethlehem were home to thousands of lambs used in ritual worship in the temple. As a boy from Bethlehem, King David would likely have tended the sheep that were destined for daily offerings or used in the sacrifices on the high holidays in these very hills. Interesting is that David would have looked after these Sacrificial lambs. Aaron Smith again says that every day, according to the Torah, two lambs were required for a daily sacrifice in the temple, meaning that 730 were needed each year, plus the tens of thousands more lambs needed for Passover, as well as for the other religious rituals. Now, before you start going, oh, this is horrible. Why would God ordain something like this? All these animals being killed, all this bloodshed, it's horrible. Yes, it is horrible. That's the point. They were being, their blood was being shed to atone for sin. That is how repulsive sin is to God. That is why God sent his son. 
to die on the cross to pay for sin. That's how repulsive sin is. God makes it very clear, we read in Isaiah, that God doesn't delight in the the shedding of blood, in the death of bulls and goats and so on. It doesn't make God happy. But the whole point is to drive home to us the reality of our sin. Most people in this world think, well, I'm okay, I'm not as bad as that person down the road. Or, Well, great, judge yourself by that standard if you want, but God doesn't use that standard. God uses his standard. And God's standard is perfect. That's why we need a saviour. Everyone in Israel recognised Bethlehem as being synonymous with sacrificial lambs. Now, it's interesting because we're told in Luke 2.19 that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I bet she did when these shepherds arrived, knowing what their job was. And they come in and they inspect little baby Jesus. I wonder what she was thinking. But she certainly ponders these things. Now, for first century Christians, hearing that Yeshua, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem would have automatically triggered that image of the Lamb of God, Yahweh, who takes away the sin of the world. And with that in mind, it's easy for us to imagine one of Luke's listeners saying, of course the Lamb of God would originate in Bethlehem. All the lambs for sacrifice came from there. We're very familiar with Micah 5 verse 2. It says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, everlasting. So it's a verse we hear every Christmas time. But you know what else Micah prophesied? He didn't just prophesy that Bethlehem was to be the location. He was more specific than that. You see, we know that all the places to reside in Bethlehem were full. And we're told that Jesus was born in a manger. Now, tradition has again told us that some innkeeper directed them to his or to a stable. That's what tradition has told us. Well, the shepherds again were in the field around Bethlehem. We know that. And the angels then appear and they announce that Jesus is born. And they give the shepherds a sign. And this is really significant, as signs are. But they don't give them any directions. Have you ever noticed that? The angels never got directions. It says, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in the manger. That's actually the Greek. It's the manger. That's the sign. They don't say, you need to go to this. There could be anything up to about 8,000 people living in Bethlehem. The shepherds didn't go around all night knocking on doors. They knew exactly where to go from these two things. They were looking for a babe that was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's the first clue. And lying in the manger. So again, something very significant about this manger. We know that the shepherds were fearful and afraid and no doubt a little bit amused because of the whole thing. But we're told that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen as it was told unto them. Immediately they recognized what was going on, so it seems. And why was just seeing a baby in a stable next to an inn cause such overwhelming joy? They had no idea that, that Joseph wasn't the biological father, that Jesus was from heaven, from God. They didn't understand all of that, and yet they come away with a great understanding of what they've just witnessed. It's because they didn't go to a stable next to an inn. And again, there may not have even been an inn, which is another side in itself. It could have been a guest chamber, which is how the word is properly translated, possibly an annex built onto the family home. 
And the reason there was no room may have been more to do with the ceremonial laws of purity and so on, rather than Bethlehem being just fully booked. There's a number of scriptures that allude to that. Um, but tradition has kind of invented Hotel Bethlehem and an innkeeper. And of course, it's the part in the Christmas play that that, that, that one child always gets. There's that one line, there is no room at the inn. And that's, that's the only one line they get. Uh, and we see it so often in these Christmas plays. Not, not this one. And we see, of course, the oxen and the, the cattle and all those things. But again, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen as it was told them. So where did they stay? And what made the shepherds so ecstatic? Well, back in the previous chapter in Micah, we read this. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of of Jerusalem. This tower of the flock is very significant. It's very interesting. It is a watchtower, literally. It's, it's the place here was actually Migdal Eder. That's the Hebrew phrase, phrase in the text. The tower of the flock. And it refers to a particular tower that was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. But most importantly, to protect the sheep. It was the shepherd's tower. As the name means, the watchtower of the flock. Now, several of those towers are recorded in the Bible. I think some references there if you want to look at them at other times. Rabbi Short makes this comment. He says, This Migdal Eder was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. Migdal Eder is also mentioned in the Jewish Targums and is translated the anointed one of the flock of Israel. Back in Genesis, we saw this recently, we looked at this a few weeks ago, there's a reference to when Rachel dies um, and she's buried not far from this place. And Israel's journey is his tent beyond the Tower of Edar, the same place. It's been there for a long time. That's a picture of the said tower. It's Watchtower, just on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you just see, it's just at the bottom of the map. This is just on the road coming into Bethlehem, and that's where the tower is, even to this day. It was used by the shepherds, again, to protect to watch over their flock from robbers or wild animals again given the significance of the sheep around bethlehem again they were destined for the temple it was an important job to look out and guard against trouble but it also served a dual purpose because during the lambing season the sheep were brought into the tower from the fields and the lower level functioned as a birthing room for sacrificial lambs now again themselves under special rabbinical care the shepherds would strictly maintain a ceremonial clean birthing place. So once birthed, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in this hewn depression of limestone rock known as the manger. And they would wrap the newborn lambs in swaddling clothes, swaddling bands, to prevent them from thrashing about and harming themselves until they calmed down, and so that they could be inspected for quality of being without spot or blemish and thus eligible to be offered up in the temple. Now, approaching this subject from the Hebrew perspective shows that while the swaddling clothes were used for the, or swaddling cloths were used for handling of newborn babies, swaddling bands, as reference also in Job 38 9, were used for subduing animals prior to sacrifice. See, the details are very specific in the Bible. These swaddling bands were strips of gauze like cloth used to restrain a lamb from uh, being prepared for inspection before sacrifice to prevent them thrashing so that they don't blemish themselves the sacrifice had to be bound 
in order to be valid. Binding an animal for sacrifice, we see also in the Hebrew. Specifically mentioned in Abraham's binding of Isaac. We read about in Genesis 29. So there was no need for the angels to give the shepherds directions to the birthplace. Because the shepherds already knew it. Once they were given those signs, they knew exactly where to go. And these were the men who raised sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple, that were birthed and laid in the manger and wrapped in these swaddling bands at Migdalida, at this tower. And when the angelic announcement came, they knew exactly where to go. Also, there was no doubt, be aware that the prophecy from Micah that the Messiah would make his appearance to Israel at their tower. It was a very important place, and the rabbis believed it to be so. Again, Luke 2 indicates that the sign of the manger could only mean the manger at the base of the Tower of the Flock, as it's found in the original Greek wording. You can't explain either the meaning or the direction of the sign they were given, or their response, unless you have the right manger, the right shepherds, and again, the proper Hebraic perspective of this. Something, again, that tradition has robbed us of. So, when there was no room for them in the guest chamber, Joseph had to find shelter and a place for Mary to give birth. And on their route into Bethlehem, they'd have traveled right past this tower. And it's to this place that Joseph then takes Mary. And it's in this special place at Migdalida, where it was prophesied by Micah, that the first dominion, the first time God would come. It was at that tower that Christ was born, fulfilling that prophecy. Again, this tower of the flock is the exact place in Bethlehem for Christ to be born from a prophetic perspective. See, God was faithful in assuring Israel that he would fulfill his promises to them of the kingdom. That was at a time following the Babylonian captivity and around that time. And God was promising them that it wasn't over, that they would return to their land. There would be a future, there would be a king. And the first time that king comes, it would be to this place. And again... Prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, that's an Old Testament commentary that the Jews have, that of all the places in Israel, it would be Migdalida, the tower of the flock in Bethlehem, where the arrival of the Messiah would be declared first. Again, that scripture. Now, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Warren Wisby, a very respected Bible commentator, makes this comment. He says, As the pregnant woman must deliver the child, so Judah must be taken captive to Babylon. It would be a time of pain, but it would eventually bring blessing. God promised to deliver them and restore them, and Micah uses the prophecy of the Babylonian captivity of Judah as a pledge to guarantee the birth of Christ at Migdal Eder, Bethlehem, which is exactly where it took place. Micah prophesied that as surely as the Babylonians would soon carry away Judah in the north, so the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And here Micah pledges that as surely as Babylon would carry away Israel into captivity, so the Messiah would arrive at the tower of the flock. And of course, Micah goes on with that prophecy in chapter 5 to confirm that Bethlehem is the place. In another book on this subject, we just read a quote, Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, was the place where lambs destined for the temple were born and raised. Every firstborn male lamb from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy, set aside for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Generations of hereditary shepherds tended the sacred flocks. So, in closing, 
Of course, the greatest present ever given was that which God gave to us in giving Jesus. God's Son, given as the Lamb, who would take away the sins of the world. Born in the town of sacrificial lambs. Inspected by the very shepherds who would approve the lambs to be offered in Jerusalem to atone for sin. Laid in the manger and wrapped in swaddling bands to prevent any blemish. He is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. That is what tradition tries to obfuscate when we get to Christmas time. That's what we're going to see presented to us now in our nativity play. If somebody would like to just go and uh, tell the children that we are ready for them. If you just wait for a moment while we get everything set up.